From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone. Born and raised and currently residing in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He is the founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling, as well as the author of the best-selling book, Sell the Way You Buy. Please welcome David Primer! You know, you told me you were going to do that, but I don't think I was fully prepared for how awesome that was. I think I'm going to, I'm going to require all podcast hosts to do that from now on. Thanks, man. That was awesome. It's my job as the hype man to hype up your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, so he is David Primer, as I mentioned, founder and chief sales scientist at Cerebral Selling. They help sales reps, leaders, and their organizations supercharge their growth through a combination of training, keynote talks, and consulting. And the result is modern sellers who think like their customers learn fast and flat out get those W's, AKA signed deals. He also authored the Amazon Canada bestselling book, Sell the Way You Buy. And today our conversation is around the paradox of selling ROI. David, welcome to the show and let our listeners know why this topic of paradox of ROI selling is on your mind and why it's important to you. Oh yeah, well look, so thanks for having me here. And yeah, you know, this idea when we go out and we try to you know, convert customers and try to convince them that our solution is the best, Part of, the, part of the problem, the challenge is that we are told and conditioned by our leaders to go out and sell value. They say, go out and sell value, sell value. And really what they mean is sell ROI. Like go tell the customer that if they spend this money with us, they'd be silly not in fact to spend this money with us because if they do, they're either going to make more money or they're going to save more money than what they're spending. And so they're really saying like sell ROI. But the reality is when you actually inspect how people actually make purchasing decisions, we don't make purchasing decisions strictly and solely based on ROI. In fact, we make decisions mostly based on feelings. And that's what I refer to as the paradox of ROI is that we think oftentimes, oh yeah, we're just selling our, you know, we're, we're selling value in terms of business value, but that's actually not what people are buying. So that's why it's so important because it's so, such a pervasive issue. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and we are going to dive deeper into that in a moment. But first, let's learn a little bit more about David the man, not to be confused with the music artist Portugal the man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to be confused, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I'm curious, what is either your favorite book or movie of all time and why? Oh my God. You know, I'll tell you, my kids tease me to no end because I actually have very few favorites. I was at, you know, I'm not, I'm not inciting happy birthday wishes. It was my birthday a couple of weeks ago. And well, I will say happy birthday. <laughs> thank you very much. No, my, but my kids, they always tease me like, dad, you're so hard to shop for. Cause you don't have, you don't want anything. You don't, you have no favorites. And, and, the, and you know, it's true. Um, you know, 
I have, uh, you know, lots of things that I, I deeply like. Um, you know, people often ask me, uh, for example, what's my favorite sales movie? That, that's, a, that's a good one. A sales and movie, as if, there's like a, as if there's like a whole lot of sales. There's a, there's a spectrum of sales <laughs> movies, for sure. You know, you got your Wolves of Wall Streets and your Boiler Rooms and so yeah. on. But I, I always say my favorite, um, my favorite sales movie is Tommy Boy. And uh, <laughs> some people, some people kind of like, was that a sales movie? And some people are like, hell yeah, that's a sales movie. That's awesome. And, and the reason I love Tommy Boy is because you have this, this guy who's uh, what I call an unconscious seller, meaning he's actually quite good at sales, but he doesn't know the pathways and mechanisms that he has to exploit to be really good. So he's just kind of meandering through and sometimes he screws up and he's a, you know, he's an income poop and sometimes he, you know, he crushes it. But then at the end, he realizes his genius. And so I actually think it's a, and it's a great, it's a funny movie. Check it out. We met all miss Chris Farley. But also, um, you know, it's a great, uh, you know, analogy to how modern sellers need to operate. That's interesting. I, I mean, I, yeah, I would view it through the lens of it being a kind of a sales lesson, but I, I don't think I thought about it to that depth that you just explained. <laughs> As we all know, if you've seen the movie, you can get a good look at a piece of meat by sticking your head up a bull's ass. That's right. Take the butcher's word for it. <laughs> and I'll tell you, you know, just for, if you want a quick book plug, one of my favorite books is uh, Dan Pink's To Sell as Human. Mm -hmm. um, I think he does an awesome, I'm a big Dan Pink fan, but I think he does an awesome job of synthesizing the world of sales because uh, he's not a salesperson, although he does a, a fantastic job of sourcing tons of sales insights and data and describing how just normal everyday people, while not in official sales roles, find themselves in selling situations all the time and, and kind of what, general society thinks about that. Mm -hmm. When you're not obsessing over sales, uh, how do you unplug or how do you disconnect? Well, that's, you know, that's a problem, Raj. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, so I'm, a, I'm, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm a startup guy and it's kind of fun. So I do do things, you know, for fun. Um, but I love what I do. I spend a lot of time thinking and operating on, on you know, my business and just kind of, you know, this, this whole mindset of modern selling. But, you know, I, uh, I'm a good Canadian boy, so I played hockey for about 40 years. Um, stopped a few years ago just because my kids' activities took over. Uh, but I love to play hockey. I love to cook. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the cook in the family. And uh, I also love to kind of, you know, tinker and build things. I think it's a bit of like my engineering background and curiosity. I love to get the drill out and you know, fix things and build things. But yeah, just, I think when you, when you think about my, my, my academic background was in chemistry and engineering and, and which is kind of cooking. And then I said, <laughs> I love to cook and tinker. It's you find as you get older, you have kind of a common thread that tends to permeate your life and, you, and it takes time to kind of see these common threads, but yeah. then you realize kind of you know, what it is that you love. Well, let's see if we can create a common thread here. Uh, engineering and chemistry, hockey, and sales. What do you feel is the common thread amongst those things? You know, I, I think I go back to actually, you know, um, Dan Pink's book, Drive, uh, you know, the surprising truth about what motivates us and, and this idea of, of mastery. Like I think, you know, curiosity and mastery, you're always trying to figure out how to, how to get better at something and optimize something. And um, I love to be able to, I'm a sucker, by the way, from books, from books perspective, I'm a sucker for books or knowledge that explains the science and the why behind things that we see in everyday life, right? So like one of my other favorite books is Thinking Fast and Slow, where kind of Daniel Kahneman kind of unpacks all of these things that we unconsciously um, don't, don't know, we don't internalize. Um, and so I think that's the common thread, you know, chemistry, engineering, like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? I did um, computer modeling as part of a master's degree. It's just, I, I get very, very curious, but, but I actually bring, that's the common thread, I feel, but the, the, and the mastery around it. 
because you're never really, you're never really done. You know, like you're never really finished cooking. You're never really finished building things. You're never really finished sales because not, it's not like, um, you know, math or medicine. And I'm not saying those professions and spaces don't change, but sales changes so much, partially because buyers and buyer behavior changes so much. So you find that people that, that ran tactics five, 10 years ago, those, those tactics don't work anymore. And so uh, that's, I think, what keeps us going in sales is kind of that curiosity and, and kind of drive to win by figuring out kind of the pathways and mechanisms by which we do that. So that, for me, it's like a big chew toy for my brain. I love it. Yeah. Oh, and I would say, too, that hockey is a physical representation of pathways, right, and maneuvers to ultimately, quote unquote, score or win, right, which is what you're trying to do in sales as well. Now, Let's talk about how you got into sales because you have a pretty like storied sales career in several organizations. You uh, found, co-founded a company called Ripple, which was ultimately acquired by Salesforce. You then did sales at Salesforce. Um, you were VP of sales at uh, Influitive. You also lecture on sales at um, Queens University. So, I mean, you have this engineering and chemistry degree. Uh, how, how does sales enter your life in the first place? Doesn't that seem like a natural transition to you, Raj? I don't know. Just, you know, <laughs> doesn't everyone do that? Yeah, I will say though, a previous company I worked at, the, um, the chief revenue officer who was brought in while I was there was also an engineering major in college and then ended up being at like Oracle and stuff and had a long sales career. So there's clearly some direct link here that more than one person has made. And, <laughs> and right. I want to know how does that, how did it come about? We should be doing more recruiting at engineering schools, I think, for sales. <laughs> well, no, you know what? No one gets into sales on purpose. I always talk about this. I get, you know, oh, I, I started in science and engineering, but everyone started in something, um, something unrelated to sales because you can't generally take sales in school. Um, in, in part of the, the beauty and the challenge with sales is that there's such a low bar. There's no, you know, there's no qualifications. I'm grateful now, actually, you know, some schools are starting to teach it. I think in my book, I talk about how 4,000, um, you know, universities in the U.S. have business programs, but but only about a hundred or so. This was a, a year or two ago. Had anything to do with sales, so we don't teach it. Um, I got into sales at the turn of the dot com boom, so nineteen ninety nine two thousand. I was fish, finishing up my graduate work here at the University of Toronto, and the part of the catalyst was as you're trying to think about like what are you going to do like after this? Is this what I'm going to do? I'm going to be in academia? Is that what I'm going to do? Um, you, you kind of start looking for clues and what other people are doing. And I remember there was a, an engineering grad that came back for like a career fair talk. And I remember he was working at um, McKinsey Consulting at the time. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is cool. You, I didn't, didn't even know you can go into business from sales. Like that's really interesting. And so it kind of piqued my curiosity into getting more into the kind of the business side of things. And the, I ended up actually um, interviewing at a bunch of companies, got a, a job at IBM as a sales engineer. And uh, I got this job about eight months before I was scheduled to graduate. So I was just kind of coasting to the finish line. And a few weeks before I was supposed to start my job at IBM, I got hooked up with this young entrepreneur who was a, um, helping start a, a startup in Toronto. There's about 20 people there at the time. And uh, I'm like, oh, this is 99, 2000. The dot-com boom thing is happening. I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just, should just do this instead. I was 25. I'm like, okay, like, what, do I, what do I have to lose? So I, I did. I said, you know, no, no thanks, IBM. I, I joined this startup as a sales engineer. So I was doing, you know, shout out also to all the sales engineers out there. I think it's a hugely, um, uh, I guess, underappreciated entry point into the sales profession because I've, oftentimes people think, oh, I got to be a BDR, SDR, and that's great. 
but you can, you know, I started my career as a sales engineer, you know, doing demos and, and custom coding and config and being in front of customers and, and seeing how this, because we were partnered with sales reps, it was an enterprise sales game. So seeing how the sales reps executed. So that's where I got hooked. And, and that business, I learned a ton. We, we grew it to $100 million business and 700 people over the course of the next several years. We, we IPO'd, we got acquired. And that's where I kind of got the sales bug. And actually, for the first eight years of my career, I, uh, I was a sales engineer and led sales engineering teams. That was my entree to sales from, from more of the technical side. So um, super grateful for that, that intro. And I'm a huge um, startup advocate. You know, I love, I mean, I've obviously worked at big companies, uh, shout out to my Salesforce friends, but I, I love startups and all of the awesome things that you learn and kind of fighting your way out of the bear pit is what I call it. So that's how I got my start. Let's talk about the creation of cerebral selling and the decision to write your book, sell the way you buy. So you've been running cerebral selling now for about two and a half years. Uh, you know, your book came out in the, in the last year. So, um, uh, what made the, what made you have the decision to say I'm going to stop doing this at a company and I'm going to actually build my own company around training these things and by the way I'm going to write a book too. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it started a, it started a while back. It, it wasn't just a split second decision. That I said, okay, I'm just going to pivot and do this instead. Um, back at Salesforce, you know, the great thing about Salesforce when I joined them, there were six thousand employees there, and when I left five years later, there were twenty four thousand employees. Now they're you know a few years later, they're like fifty thousand employees. And, you know, one of the great things is when they bring entrepreneurs in from the outside, they want them to share, you know, some of their insights and perspective, um, kind of having been on, on the entrepreneurial customer side. And I was a Salesforce customer many times before I started to work there. So when I was there, I started to write and I started to, you know, write blog posts and I wrote for the Salesforce blog. And then, you know, some of the content ended up getting picked up by like Forbes and entrepreneur. I'm like, oh, like, this is kind of cool. And then uh, my leadership team encouraged me. I was running small business sales for the Eastern U.S., at Salesforce, but my leadership team encouraged me. They said, you should be doing like more of this kind of helping and training and bringing the outside perspective. So I did that kind of as a little side hustle um, and started, you know, creating these programs, you know, internally and both for customers. And then I left Salesforce after five years to be VP of sales at another company. But I kept, I kept doing those other things. I kept writing and I kept, you know, kind of running these little side programs for my teams. And then what I realized was that I had all this content and no home for it. Like I didn't have my own website or blog or anything like that. My content was all over the place. And I said, well, this is dumb because when my friend Raj calls me up and says, hey, David, can you lay some stuff on me? I'm like, okay, well, I got to send you like a million links. I'm like, this is yeah. stupid. So <laughs> I said, I'm just going to create my own website. And so, you know, I go on to GoDaddy and I'm like, okay, let me register for a website. And like, what should I call it? And it was literally just one night. Um, you know, I, I kind of just thought of the name Cerebral Selling, you know, something selling. Everyone calls it something selling. And um, because of my science and engineering background, and I kind of, I like to think a lot, um, I'm a bit of an introvert. Uh, someone called me cerebral once and it kind of stuck. So I'm like, oh, cerebral selling. And then the URL was available and boom, there you went. So what happened was I just took all my content, shoved it on cerebral selling, and it just started as my website just to have content. And I would write there as I was doing my VP job at this other company. Um, and it was great. It was helpful to my, to my team members, uh, to the community. And then people started to subscribe and I'm like, Oh, okay, people are subscribing. Now. This is going to be like, a, this is going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. And then I just said, you know what, what's the, th what, what am I, what am I doing? Like, what's the thing that I love to do most in the world that I'm doing for free off to the side because out of the goodness of my heart, cause I love it so much and people are digging it. Right. And so I said, you know, what if, what if this was my business? And, um, so I, I, I made the switch and, and people say, was that hard? Like you're leaving a VP sales job to kind of do your own solo venture and 
you know, it's kind of training and consulting. And uh, I say, no, no, like I never for a second regretted it. It was, I felt empowered and, and passionate about what I was doing even before I started. So I, I it was the most natural of transitions. Um, but you asked about the book and, and part of the challenge is when you're like one guy, like what can one guy do, right? Like I don't have a team. I don't have any staff. And my goal was never to have my logo on a building somewhere and, and, you know, make this a big thing per se, but I needed to achieve scale. And so the blog lets me do that. And I started my YouTube channel. And so my YouTube channel, tons of two, three minute videos. And I never, you don't have to register for any of this stuff. I give all this stuff away for free, but the book for me, because I had read so many awesome sales books and because, you know, I felt this is an awesome way of achieving, helping achieve scale and having a great reinforcement for my training after I leave, because, you know, some people, they don't, read blogs or do videos, but they love books. And this was kind of like a bucket list thing. I'm like, you know what, I should, I want to write a book. So every year kind of, I have a goal and this was my goal for kind of 2019. Um, so I started in early 2019 uh, writing the book and finally published in, in April, 2020. But that was, that was the thing. It was a bucket list thing, a way of achieving scale. I'm um, getting the message out there, connecting with a new audience and just, um, just kind of being proud of, of how, of how we can pull all of this, you know, these ho hopefully helpful insights and content together to change the world of modern selling. Let's dive into the book then. Oh, but, and you know, by the way, it's funny you said people started naturally saying you're cerebral. Maybe you are a pro wrestler because the nickname for the pro wrestler Triple H is the cerebral assassin. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's you're awesome. Cere cerebral seller would, would totally be your, uh, your wrestling name. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So, in the book, you have this whole chapter specifically on the paradox of ROI, and that's our topic for today's paradox of selling ROI. Um, let's start here then. Why do you think the natural default for salespeople is to prove ROI to the potential customer? Yeah, I think there's a lot of default behaviors that salespeople have. And part of the motivation of kind of why I started my business and why I started writing was that default behavior. You know, this idea that we don't get trained, like the, I start off the book talking about, I call the, the first chapter is called the Cobra Kai paradox, which if you're, I sense you might be a Karate Kid fan. I don't know, <laughs> you know, the 1984, I know there's now a YouTube series and so on, but I call it the Cobra Kai paradox. And the idea behind the, I maybe I use the, the, word, the word paradox too often, <laughs> but, the, uh, but the idea behind the Cobra Kai paradox is this, in sales, you learn from your sensei, right? That's how we learn. Uh, there's no school. Maybe we do some training, but even the training, there's so many different kinds of training out there is selected by your sales leadership team. And we just end up being, we end up growing up to be like the practitioner that our sensei taught us to be. And if our sensei was, can I, can I swear on the show here? Yeah. If the, your sensei was an asshole, okay, then you grow up to be an asshole salesperson. Right. But if your if your sensei was like a Mr. Miyagi kind of, you know, kind of by the way, by the way, I'm laughing that your swear word was asshole. I wasn't talking about Bob in your life. Damn. All right, continue. I don't want to die on the most too Canadian much. thing you could have done. If I say it quietly, maybe people won't hear. So, so if you, if you learn from your Mr. Miyagi kind of leader, then you grew up to be like that. And, and I was always like an outsider from a sales perspective. Like when you ask salespeople, Hey, do you like talking to salespeople? They all say, no, the only people that say yes are the ones that have a professional curiosity 
Mm-hmm. And then they say, oh yeah, I want to talk, I want to listen to salespeople because I, I want to hear how they do it because I want to see, you know, I want to compare it to how I do it. But in general, people don't like talking to salespeople. And I had this epiphany, especially at Salesforce and even now where I get prospected into by all manner of people. I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. And I'm just like, stop using these tactics. Like you're ruining it for everyone when you do this, right? Like, because you're making people hate you. And when they hate you, they hate me. And so I realized, you know, when I was at Salesforce that I was not selling the way I buy, you know, we were executing these tactics, which are not bad or, or unethical or categorically ineffective, but they just would never work on me. And I'm like, so why are we telling people to do this stuff? Right. And so that's what I mean by the Cobra Kai paradox. That was actually my motivation for, for starting cerebral selling and trying to teach people to do it fundamentally the right way, not based on, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, modern, oh, we're going to do social selling and LinkedIn voicemails and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But just like the classical, how people make purchasing decisions, how to have human conversations with other human beings, uh, you know, kind of that helped them. So, so this idea stands the test of any technology change. That's it. Well, you know what I, I, when, when you read like some good books, and this was part of the motivation for my book as well. Some of the books are very timely. Like they talk about a concept that's very relevant now. Right. But I, I wanted, I love the books that are timeless, that you can read them 20 years from now and they're still amazing, right? Well, I mean, there's a reason that we, I mean, we have internet like 5.0, 5.0 at this point, yet people still talk about Think and Grow Rich, which came out in like 1936, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's true. So I, I love these t- kind of timeless principles. And so, um, so back to like the, the paradox of ROI, you know, why are people conditioned to sell ROI? Well, look, you know, it's not a bad tactic. You know, hey, look, if I'm appealing to your reasonable mind and you're in a reasonable kind of, you know, mindset, they look, you're going to spend this money with them. You're going to make this money back. Like it's an investment. It's no big deal. But we all know that like, that's not necessarily how people buy because people value all sorts of different things. Like I could say, look, if you spend money on insurance and you die, then you're going to get this money back and you have to decide whether or not that's worthwhile. You could say, I could say, look, if you go to the gym and you lift all these weights, you're going to get strong. That only, you know, and you're going to be able to do all these things, but that only works if you care about those things, right? So the things that people value relationships, um, you know, caring for the environment, um, you know, insurance, safety, security, these all come back to feelings at the end of the day. And so that's the idea behind the paradox of ROI. It's not that ROI is bad, it's that it's incomplete as a message to send to people. Because I guarantee if I lined up 10 vendors right now and said like, what's your ROI? What's the ROI of your solution? They all have one, they all, there's a story, it's, you know, but it all comes down to, is it aligned with what I want? And do I believe that I can achieve that ROI, right? And so, mm-hmm. That's what we just do it because we're taught that way, but there's, it's, it's, it's insufficient today to, to convert modern buyers. You mentioned there are salespeople out there like ruining it for the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> I, I, that happens to me probably almost every week where I get like a really bad email or one time actually it was a, a service I was considering purchasing. Ultimately I decided not to. And like the response email I got was, it was just like that classic like sleaze tactic where it was they, they said in response, could you please tell me why you're not interested in saving X percent on, like, you know, and I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> you swore just now, Raj. I just want to point that out. Yeah. Like a real swear word, not like what I, my Canadian yeah, swear word. <laughs> um, okay. So then when we think about the science behind this, um, 
what's happening. So let's say I'm the seller here and I'm trying to explain the value of my product to you through the lens of ROI. And I'm, and I'm telling you like, Oh, it's going to be great. Your production costs are going to go down 20%. You're going to be, you know, 35% more efficient. Uh, long-term you should see about, uh, you know, even a 15% increase in revenue at the end of the day, what's happening in your brain as I talk to you like that? So I'm, I'm, I'm questioning all these assumptions, you know, so where are you getting this data from? Um, is this applicable to me? Are you telling me this because this is what your best customers experience? Will I experience all of these things? Um, you know, how much of this is realistic? Is this a pitch? Uh, you know, I'm thinking all these, like, I, I think you're lying to some extent. Yeah. Um, and you're making certain assumptions to some extent about my business. And, uh, you know, I, I get that you're trying to sell me, I'm trying to dissect this for us here. You're trying to sell me the, the kind of the end result, which I get, but you're not really selling me. You're selling me the ROI. So you're selling me that the, the business value that I may or may not agree with, but you're still not selling me like the feeling. So for example, like, so what? All right. So great. So I, I save 20% in this 20, 30% on that 10% of my time. Who gives a crap? Like what, what's the, what's the, so what at the end of the day, there's no, there's no emotional connection to the numbers. So I, I, and also, and also you sound like everyone else. Everyone says that, right? They, oh, it's 20% this, 30% that. So I immediately, and here's the thing as a salesperson, you might be like fresh out of boot camp, and you're like, oh my gosh, my sales leaders told me to sell this stuff and it's not working. I don't, I don't get it. What's going on. Right? So you're not saying wrong or bad things, but as the buyer, these are all the things that are going through my mind. You know, it's, I agree with you on that all the way through. And it's to add another paradox in here, <laughs> our third paradox of the episode. I think I mentioned this to you when we were doing a intro chat the other week, but uh, about a year ago, and I've mentioned on the show before, but about a year ago, I released this ebook about this thing I call the X to Y paradox, which has to do with cold emailing. And what you'll see a lot of people do in their cold emails is they'll, they'll drop their like best customer example in the email. You know, this, you know, we help so-and-so achieve 40, you know, 50% revenue gains or whatever it might be. Some like really good example. And it's not that they didn't do it. Like it did happen. The challenge is that as I see it, the person you're reaching out to who doesn't even know you yet is in a current state of X, right? The letter X by giving them your best example, you have shown them a state of why, like a future state, right? But they don't know you yet. And so they, and they kind of like being in their state of X. And so when you give them a state of Y with the, you know, 50% revenue gain or whatever that might be, it's just too far of a leap for them because they kind of like where they are today. And so my advice, you know, I'm basically summarizing, I don't know, 20 pages here into, into a couple sentences, but um, is to deliver X plus one. So incremental gain that is more associated with feeling than anything else. So um, you can use a number, but in the context of first introducing how someone responded to it or, hey, so-and-so said it's been really helpful you know, for their organization. Uh, it's just, you know, they said it's made life a lot easier and it's also led to you know, and then just say some incremental gain that the person can wrap their head around because similar to this ROI thing, my layman's terms way of saying it is 
it's you you trigger the yeah but brain yeah comma but where just as you were saying how you were kind of innately reacting before the brain kind of goes into this either like one of two responses yeah but what data did you fudge to make this sound good or you rationalize why your case is unique and it like yeah but we operate this way so that wouldn't work for us right it's just when it's too much of when it's too good to be true or it sounds yes. too good to be true the person is going to think <laughs> it is too good to be true and not even want to respond or engage in an email or take the meeting um and that's what i think you're saying not only exists in the upfront but even like as the sales process moves along is that accurate yeah, you know, back to this idea that ROI needs to be believable to have an impact. So if you start throwing out all these platitudes, and by the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about that 50% leap customer. Um, and, and you might have those customers on your website, right? And those things are not bad. But from a customer's perspective, they, they only serve to kind of uh, get me to lean in and say, all right, this is interesting. Tell me more, mm. hopefully. Um, and you are in a position and here's the other problem that salespeople when you're crafting these ROI, some people, here's the thing, you go out and you tell your customer, okay, you can achieve this 50% gain. But in the back of your mind, you know that not all of your customers are going to achieve that gain, right? Mm -hmm. That might be your best customer story in one instance, right? And then as you hear maybe sometimes stories of customers that were not so successful with your solution, you become a little bit emotionally encumbered. You're like, hold oh, on, it's like, now I'm going out talking about this 50% thing. I know some customers aren't super successful. And, and then people can actually tell in your voice that you don't believe in what you're saying, mm. right? And so part of the, the, the thing that we can do as sellers when we go and we talk about this ROI is not just talk about the, the business value and the, the return, but what those customers had to do, right? Like what did they have to do to achieve that return? You know, so in order to, to maximize the return, you need to do this. We need to do this. Like this has to be kind of a perfect storm. Now we can, you know, tweak these assumptions for you, but all it does is it gives that customer a level of confidence that yes, they're going to see kind of a certain return, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's what I would say. It's like if you're bringing data, and the other thing you mentioned, which I think was great as well, is this kind of X plus one, mm -hmm. right? The idea is that when you throw out a message, uh, a pitch, an ROI stat, the only thing that matters is it has to be believed. Dan Pink refers to this in his book as processing fluency. I say process because I'm Canadian. That's <laughs> it. Processing fluency. Right, this idea is like when I say something, how quickly is it digested? Now, if I start throwing out all these fifty percent numbers, that's not gonna, you know, he calls it like it goes down smooth, like a nice scotch. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not gonna go down smooth in your brain. And so, picking the right kind of numbers when you show your 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 value is really important too. If I were to give you an example, I would say, let's say, let's say you, part of the value of your solution is it saves people time. Okay, you implement the solution, it's automated, blah blah blah, boom, saves people time. How much time are we talking here? If I go out to you and I say, Raj, this solution, if you put this in, it's going to save 10% of your time every month, right? Or I could go out and I can say, Raj, if you put the solution in, it's going to save you 20 hours a month. Now, those two things might be mathematically equivalent, okay? But they are not processed in the same way right. by your brain. You can picture 20 hours a month. 10% mm -hmm. of that, like, no, you can't. Now, I'm not saying it should always be the absolute number versus the sure. percentage. Sometimes the percentage is the more compelling number. But the idea is the X plus one, it's a, this idea predicated on, it's an idea that goes down smooth. I can get that, right? Yeah. And so the way you present data and the way you present numbers is equally important. Yeah, you know, and one of the examples I give in that, in that ebook, um, which I have, you know, successfully used in my own outreach is, you know, my, I personally have a customer success story with one of my clients where their close rate 
was 12% on their demo calls. And we got it up to a 38% close rate. And then at one point, the, the rep was even hovering around like 45, 50% close rate. Now, I think it's too much to say this person had a 50% close rate or a 38% close rate or even you know a 26% increase. Then you're thinking about, well, what's the gain there, right? So the way I phrase it instead is, hey, like I, I give like the little like what they like how they said it helped them just at like a qualitative level, and then it and then add on to it, uh, they were this was able to help them bring in a couple more deals every month, which if you're a sales leader or a CEO, which is who I'm going after, you think about it in the lens of man, if my reps could just close like two more deals every month, we'd really be in a good shape. They're not thinking about it man, if we can get to a 26% increase in sales, right? Or if we can get, right? Or they're not saying, they also don't think about, man, if my worst person can just start closing all their deals, we'd be set because they know that's not, that's not reasonable. Yes. So you're right. It's really about how you like, how you phrase it. And even in the example you gave where it's like, whatever it was, 10% or 20 hours, or 20 hours gain. It's even like even further than that. Or is it, 20 hours per month or is it five hours per week or is it one hour per day? Right. And, th and that's where you start to get into, I think the persona of who you're selling to and really thinking about um, really coming from that like empathic lens, right? How do they think about their own day, which comes back to that core theme, which is your book, which is selling the way someone mm -hmm. buys and buy is not just how do they buy things. It's how do they like input intake information on a daily basis. Right. That's right. How they internalize. Well, you know, here's a perfect example. So let's say I'm selling training, sales training. That's a stretch, right? So I actually do sell sales training. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what, when someone buys my sales training, what are they buying? Like what, what is there? An, is it, is it the ROI of sales training? Cause sales training, you know, is not, uh, not the least expensive thing you can buy. And so it all depends on, well, why are you buying it in the first place? Are you looking for like a boost? Are you, did you do a funnel analysis and you've determined that between discovery and negotiation, there's like a drop off and you're looking to impact that particular metric. And if you do, you will see a re, you know, return maybe, you know, but maybe, you know, you want to invest in training because you've never invested in training before. And you're worried that your team is going to leave because they don't feel like you're committed to their professional development. Right? So, or it could be, that your team seems to lack a certain degree of confidence in their sales execution, right? They feel emotionally encumbered. And this is actually very true with young sellers. And I saw this all the time when I was at Salesforce. You have these young sellers who are super awesome, enthusiastic, and you go out and you give them these Cobra Kai tactics and they feel emotionally encumbered. They start calling on senior level decision makers and they have fear in their voice. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they get their ass handed to them on these sales calls. And so that, what's was, that the, was a 23 year old me. <laughs> well, totally. Well, here's it's, it's anyone like you could be a young seller and that's a young seller selling to an older, more experienced buyer whose job they've never done has this concept. I call it experience asymmetry. And I talk mm -hmm. about it in my book. I wrote a Harvard business article about it about a year ago, experience asymmetry, but it's also a factor for new reps, new to your business, new to the industry where you kind of go out and it's kind of like, for those of you out there that have like little kids, when your kids come to you and they're about to hit you up for something, like ask you for something, like you can tell immediately, right? Like the same way when a telemarketer calls you, you can tell immediately that it's a telemarketer reading from a script, right? So people are very perceptive. So back to like, what's the ROI of sales training? What would life be like if your reps could go out there with the confidence of someone who has 10 or 20 years more experience like in your space, right? What would the value of that be? 
And, and maybe that might be intangible. Like it might be there's a tangible value to the retention and, you know, conversion rates, all this kind of stuff. So back to like, well, okay, what's the ROI of sales training now? You know, now, now when I, if I were to pitch my sales training, which one of those am I picking? Right? I, I don't want to just lead with this one if that's not what you care about. Maybe you have an employee attrition problem and lack of investment and that's why you need to do this now. Or maybe you made the investment in training and you're like, shit, the stuff we did isn't working anymore. We need to do something else. So it's not just kind of one or the other. It's got to be aligned to, to what you believe, right, as the buyer. Yeah. Well, it's aligning to what they believe and, and, and to clarify are you saying that you should inherently know what they believe or you should actually ask in some fashion, Hey, what's important to you? And then build your sort of customer story around that. Yeah. Well, this question I actually saw a video of someone posted on LinkedIn yesterday about not making assumptions. Like don't make assumptions when you go into about what they care about. And I think that's, that's totally valid. Um, but I also do think there are uh, lots of considerations that people should have when they're making a purchase that are not top of mind for them. Right. So like someone buying a car may be thinking, oh, this is a super fast car and zero to 60 times really fast, but they may not be thinking about safety. But when I talk to them about safety, they might be like, oh my gosh, that's, I never thought of that. That's actually really important. Or you could tow a boat or whatever, you know what? So I do think that as, as modern sellers, we do need to bring a little bit of that future to our customers and be prescriptive. In fact, um, Gartner, um, CEB wrote uh, an awesome article about, um, you know, kind of the, the, the state of modern selling a few years ago that talked about the need for sales reps to be more prescriptive um, and lead their customers. Like, especially if it's a product that you're selling that your customers don't often buy. Like I give the example, I go into the suit store to buy a sports jacket because I need a sports jacket because I'm giving talks and stuff. Now look, I have some sports jackets. I don't buy sports jackets every week. I'm not a fashion guy. So I go into the store and I'm like, you got a million sports jackets in here. I'm trying to figure out which one to buy. And these, these salespeople at the, at the menswear store, they're well-trained and they say, okay, we're, they ask me questions. So this is the same thing we do in sales. We're trying to kind of size up our customer, get a sense for what they care about. And then once we do that, we don't have to have an exhaustive discovery. Then we start bringing suggestions. Okay, based on what I'm hearing from you, I'm going to kind of narrow down the field. And I have, I have customers that do this, even like on discovery calls, they'll say, for example, what are you using today like, to solve this problem? And based on the answer, if it's A, I go down this mm. line of discussion. If it's B, I go down this line of discussion. So I have to do a little bit of discovery, but also I think our customers are relying on us to some extent to make suggestions uh, about things that they don't focus on every day. Like that's our job as sellers. Otherwise, why, why don't we just throw everything on a website and let people discover it on their own? Right, right. And I think there's a good deal of... <sighs> honesty that's involved with that too, um, which can get tricky based on like competing conflicts of interest. Uh, but I would always say, <laughs> yeah, it's better to be honest and make a little bit less money <laughs> than to lie and make more money. Cause it probably is going to come back to you in some very bad way pretty quickly. Well, for sure. Like think about it as a seller. One of the questions I ask is like, did you ever sell your product to a customer when, maybe after the fact you realize you probably shouldn't have sold it to them. Like they're a bad right. customer, right? It's not, that, it's not that they weren't willing you, to do buy. You, do you get a response on that? That they're like, like people would generally say, yeah, that's happened before. Absolutely. hundred percent of the time. And, and I say, okay, so it, it kind of goes back to this idea of like, who are we for? Like who's a, who's a, who's one of our, you know, who's a good customer for us. And then I say, like, who's the, who's a bad customer? Who should we actually not be selling to? And it's not, I say not be selling. They're willing to buy from us. They're willing to give us money. 
but we shouldn't really be selling to them. And they all have suggestions. And I say, okay, great. What happens when we sell a product to someone who we shouldn't be selling it to, even though if they're happy to give us money, right? And they start saying, well, you know, they, they're not happy. They call our support team. They gum up our whole, our whole process. They, um, we bring them into our, um, you know, kind of product roadmap and they start making stupid suggestions for, for future development. And even worse, if that is a big influential customer, we start, we start, our product roadmap starts meandering and we start building things that are not good for the rest of our customer base and, and, and we get pulled further off course. So it's not just back to this, you know, science of emotions. Salespeople are motivated to hit their number and they want that, that big commission check. But this realization, like what happens if we sell to the wrong customers? What happens? And ultimately, how does it come back to bite us? And every salesperson has those stories. A different way to look at that from a, at an organizational level is um, I like to think of that as there's good money and bad money. Um, you want good money. Good money informs the next dollar you should be making. Bad money uh, either doesn't lead to your next dollar or it actually takes away from the next good dollar you should be making. And that, and it really it comes down to like, what as you said good customer bad customer right because it's like could you make money off this yes but do you want to keep making money off of a customer like that if the answer is no then why even get started down that path and then have to build out a whole new like revenue projection for stuff that you don't even want to be doing <laughs> totally i mean look you can't be oblivious sometimes your customers do pull you in a good direction right something that's aligned with your mission but yeah, you don't want those bad fit customers. They, they, they just do come back to bite you. I think my message to, to sellers and their leaders would be, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of times sellers are um, incentivized by their comp plans to bring on whatever customers you know, we can. Right now, some, some you know, more enlightened organizations will have like clawbacks if the customer churns or you have a rep who's responsible for a certain territory and maintaining the revenue of that territory. So if they bring on a bad fit customer, you know, it's kind of on them. So there's lots of things that people can do to build in kind of protections into the, their compliance, which I recommend that you do, especially if you're a growth company, because you just, you don't want to have those bad fit customers. They're bad for, for all sorts. They're not bad people, by the way, but they're bad for all, all sorts of reasons, right? And, uh, and keeping focused um, is really important. And it also lets you sell with more conviction if you deal with a consistent set of customers all the time. Before I forget on today's episode, I want to take a quick step aside here and talk about a new partner of the show in Sales Hacker. If you're a longtime listener of this show, and you know we do a lot more conversations that are generally speaking uh, sales or marketing based like today with David. Um, and a lot of the companies will feature have a B2B lens to them. So that's why I really like having Sales Hacker as a partner of Startup Hype Man podcast. If you're not familiar with them, they are the world's smartest community for forward-thinking B2B professionals. There's 135,000 members deep. So that means if you are a CEO, the head of sales, or a sales rep, or anywhere in between, Sales Hacker is going to help you get better at your job with podcasts, articles, webinars, and research from actual sales experts and practitioners, including moi, amongst many others. Um, and on top of that, they also just released a brand new community feature to their website. So now instead of it being passive content consumption, uh, you can actually get involved in conversations on the site, start your own discussions. For example, I was just on the site the other week and someone posed a question about 
what's the best way to break the ice with someone through LinkedIn messaging. And there was like hundreds of responses to that. It was really cool to see. Of course, I chimed in and said, well, I just send people this video of me wrapping the Fresh Prince, but about Startup Hype Man. <laughs> and that seems to work pretty well in breaking the ice. Uh, in any case, all that conversation that we had happened on Sales Hacker. So check them out. The brand new Sales Hacker is at www.saleshacker.com. You can get the articles, the podcasts, the research, and the full-on community discussions now at saleshacker.com. Today on Startup Hype Man, the podcast, we are talking with David Primer, the founder of Cerebral Selling and the author of Sell the Way You Buy. We're talking about the paradox of selling ROI, which is a big theme in his book. We've talked a lot. We had a really good conversation thus far. David, what I want to still ask you about is essentially um, when you're in the moment with someone, naturally they are... So, so I guess it's one thing to say like, if they say this, you know, you're going to go down this track, right? You're your track A, you're talk track A, B, and C if they say, you know, this is our issue or this is a product we're looking for. It's another thing where in the moment you're already in discussion with them and they're like, yeah, okay. Um, what kind of results has this gotten for others or something to that effect where they want to know how it's helped other customers. And in that case, the, for most people, the default reaction is to go, oh, well, we help so-and-so achieve X percent, right? Like go right back into that ROI mode. So how do we plan for, I guess, fighting that natural response? And what should the response be instead? I'm about to go. So I, when you said, well, you know, I think you I think you said, you know, uh, in, in an intimate moment, I was like, oh, where, where are we going with this conversation? <laughs> um <laughs> It's like Raj after dark here. So, um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, so here's the thing with case studies. I, and I, I, I have this planned rant that I'm going to do. I don't know if it's going to be a video or a, 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 an article or something, but here's the thing with case studies. When someone says, so what have other customers seen? What we tend to do is we tend to fall back on the case studies that our organizations have provided to us, right? Something that's on our website. Oh yeah. Well, like uh, Raj nation saw a 50% growth in this. And then, you know, Steve nation saw 20% growth in that. And there's a Steve nation out there. There's going to be some <laughs> fist flying, I'll tell you that much. Well, there's Dave, the man. And I don't know what the other thing is. Portugal, said. the man, <laughs> Portugal, the man, there's a lot of nations. So, so here's the thing, right? When I start reading statistics to you, right? Statistics that I have not felt or internalized or that are on a case study, you could just read them yourself. They come off, they come off sounding like this. You ever go into like a Best Buy or your electronic store and you're looking at a stereo or a TV and you ask the salesperson, so like, tell me about this TV. And they look at the little like sticker that's underneath the TV display and they start <laughs> reading that. Okay, idiot, I could have done that myself, right? <laughs> so I feel like when someone says, what is this customer experience? And we just start like reading things, like that's kind of how we sound like. And so one of the ways you can um, do better on that front, and, and I kind of call this, uh, this, uh, this concept, removing the concept of abstraction. So actually Adam Grant, so I'm a big fan of you know, Adam yeah. Grant, Warden yeah. School. I'm a big fan of Adam Grant. And, you know, one of the things he talks about um, is he did this study with the alumni department uh, of the, the, the Wharton School of Business. And the BDRs in the alumni department call up alumni and they ask them for money for donations. And they found that, you know, what are people doing? They're going out and they're calling alumni and they're saying, hey, you know, you should donate to the Wharton School. I know you went here and we use the money for scholarships and the scholarships help people and all these great. So they're talking about like these case studies, right? And so what he did was 
they had, now here's the thing. Those are just like statistics on a piece of paper. Like it just, it's like an academic exercise. I'm just reading the stuff that's underneath the stereo. So what he did was he had some students who received scholarships that were a result of alumni donations. And he had them come in and tell the, the BDRs firsthand stories of, of their lives and the impact those, uh, those scholarships had. And they found that the revenue from the BDR team increased 400%. Okay. Now those statistics may not have been any different than something that they could have read on a case study. But the fact, this idea of abstraction, abstraction is kind of this mental barrier that we put between concepts. It's like, it's why we don't give money to starving children in Africa because we say, oh, like that's happening over there. It's like, I don't know. It's like, it's out of sight. Mm. Even, you know, we look at the pandemic and I'm not saying maybe you do give to starving children in Africa and that's, that's awesome. You know, even with the pandemic here in North America, we were not the first to be hit by the pandemic. But when yeah. we're reading these stories of overseas, like, oh, that's happening over there, yeah. right? Even, I mean, I even often say that's one of the main issues with Chicago and the gun violence here is people are like, it's on the south side. It's only like three miles away, but people are like, oh, it's <laughs> happening on the south side. So they don't, th they don't bother to you know, pay attention to it. That's right. Yeah, not good, but that's the, kind of the reality of the situation. Abs abstraction. But that's, as human beings, we have to do that. Because if we subjected ourselves to all the pains of the entire world, like we couldn't survive. Like that's our, how our brains keep us safe and moving forward. So this idea of abstraction, when we read a case study and we have these statistics and we just recount them, we, we often do it with like less passion and conviction. But so here's the trick. If you have, if you're in sales, if you have some of your actual customers who have achieved this ROI or any benefit come back to you and tell you a story. I have one of my clients, I tell this story all the time. They said, you know, David, we used one of your um, discovery tactics and we just, that was the one we latched onto the most. And we were um, experiencing a, a ramp time typically of reps of like three to four months until they're at full productivity. All we, the only change we did, we start using that tactic and all of a sudden now we're getting full productivity out of reps three weeks into the job. Like we found like the switch. And I tell that story all the time. Why is there an ROI to it? I mean, I'm not talking about dollars and cents. I'm talking about ramp time, but because the customer told me that story, I can recount that story with so much passion and conviction. Mm -hmm. So back to like, customer asks me, so what's the benefit of your solution? Now you're a seller. If for example, you spoke to you, here's how you answer. Instead of saying company A saw 50% and company B saw 20%, say, you know, I spoke to, to, to Mary at company A and she does this job. And she was telling me that before she did this and now she does this. And she couldn't believe that it was such a huge transformation, just this little thing. And now I'm telling you the same story but it's like a first-hand account that I'm telling with much more passion and conviction. So it becomes a lot more believable. And then you are more likely to act just like those BDRs in the, the kind of the Adam Grant, yeah. you know, alumni school. So it's not the numbers. It's how you heard about them and how you assimilate them and how you tell them that has the biggest impact. Um, I'm curious then, let me give you like my framework that I do for this and what I recommend to clients as well. And I'd love to see you, add to it, take away from it, pick it apart, whatever you feel. So I, I always think, or not always, but um, the general framework I like to work from when explaining a customer success story is start with the qualitative, well, start with why, they, why this person you're talking to reminds you of someone else and then go into the qualitative result they got. So like the, the feelings result. From there, dial it back to uh, number three, which is where were they originally? Next is, so what did you do about it? Like what software did they buy? Like, you know, 
etc. After that, drop the quantitative result in context and then wrap it up by restating the qualitative result. So you bookend it with qualitative result. Now in that framework, so relate to why, why that buyer reminds you of the other person, qualitative, quantitative, original state, what you did, results, quantitative, back to qualitative. Uh, what's your take on that framework? You know what, as you're telling me that, I mean, it's a lot of steps, but at, here's the thing I was kept thinking of as you're telling me that. It's a narrative, yeah. right? And people are conditioned to follow narrative. I'm a big fan of this. And actually, we talked about messaging in our kind of prior call. You know, one of the big, fa- I'm a big fan of, um, you're going to laugh, hopefully not, infomercials. I love infomercials. Like you watch the shopping channel and these kinds of things. I'm a sucker for infomercials. Love my the shit out of like, infomercials. Oh no, they're using the lightning bolt graphic. You're hooked. <laughs> <laughs> well, because here's the thing. Like why, do, why are infomercials so great? Because you're, you're not expecting them. You're, you start out the commercial, not giving a shit about what it is they're talking. And at the end, you're like, I need that. How did I not survive without like my Nutribullet, you know, thing, <laughs> or my Miracle Blade 2000? So they take you on this narrative and the narrative is kind of your, it's, and so your narrative can work great. The narrative is something that is absorbed by the mind. It's very engaging because we're conditioned over the course of our human history. We passed, we passed our history and important facts through narratives and stories. Mm. So humans are conditioned. And actually this is an interesting thing from the from perspective of the science of selling they found, and this is research, I think it was done in 2014, they found that like the oxytocin and chemicals that are released in the brain when stories are told and absorbed, um, they can actually measure these things now. And so they have a better sense for like what stories work and what don't. So the arc of a story, even if it's a, an infomercial or like a five second pitch or your, you know, your narrative, it takes people on this journey. And if you hit the arc in the right way, then they're gonna be they're gonna be entrenched. It's the same way when you watch like Star Wars or a Pixar movie. You're like, this is awesome, right? When you watch a story that kind of has a like a meandering kind of tale, it just doesn't have the same impact. So, I love kind of formulaic approaches as long as it's something that people can like human beings can actually you know do and articulate. Because in your example of like X to Y, you know, oftentimes in a lot of sales systems they say you know talk about the customer's future state, talk about they're here, you want to move them to there, here's what there looks like. I think that's great. But then if you're a salesperson, you're thinking to yourself, okay, what are the words that I'm supposed to use to do that? And what you've done is you've kind of broken that down step by step saying, here are the words, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the big, a big challenge for sellers is, is kind of overcoming that knowing doing gap. It's like, I know that I need to create contrast, but okay, what are the words? What are the numbers? What are the words that have the biggest impact? What's the formula? What's the arc? And so I think when you can help people do that and, and have a formula to, to help them articulate values in a very natural way, a very human sounding way, because um, when you watch a movie, you're not like, oh my gosh, they're doing this to me. It's like, no, no, no. Like you, you're in commercial. <laughs> it, just, it just happens in your brain. Like it's that effortless purchase. And I think that's, that's what you want to achieve by this, this formulaic approach. Breathing a sigh of relief over here. <laughs> <laughs> I think All it right, sucks. Uh, I was just trying to be yeah, nice. Uh, no. By the way, you, I, I've definitely pulled you over to the dark side because you didn't even recognize, I don't know if you realized it, but you did say shit like casually in your, uh, in your monologue there. Yeah, so well, you we, let the tiger out of the cage. You off of that initial point of can I say asshole to <laughs> casually dropping shit. Maybe we'll get to an F-bomb by the end of the show. I don't know. You got to keep listening, everyone. <laughs> All right, so let's begin our wrap-up then. Um, where can our listeners find you, learn more about cerebral selling as well as um, find the book? 
Yeah. So I mean, everything I put on cerebralselling.com, the website. So just one word, cerebral selling. I give everything away for free. It's kind of part of my strategy. You don't have to register. There's nothing gated or anything like that. Um, you can sign up to my email list if you'd like. I have a YouTube channel also that's linked on my website. It's called Cerebral Selling, which you can find. Um, and the book is called Sell the Way You Buy, which you can find on my website as well. Um, or you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo, wherever you buy books. Uh, sell the Way You Buy. There you go. All right. Now to wrap up, we will each give our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on today's discussion. The topic was the paradox of selling ROI. I'll go first and I'll toss it to you, David. Yeah. So to me, the big like, um, the big wrap up to this for me, and, and it's not just about the ROI, but really the, again, the larger theme of your book, which is sell the way you buy. What I have realized more and more really over the last six months and especially three months is the value and actually being a buyer of something to understand how to be better at selling, which is what your book is about, right? Sell the way you buy. And I find the more I am in a position where I am the buyer, I'm like, hmm, I don't like how they did that. Oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Or I really like how they asked me that question, right? I actually think more reps should get trained by not just learning how to sell, but actually, I don't know, give them like a hundred dollar stipend and they are tasked with having to like buy a piece of software or something on behalf of the company, or at least get pulled into a vendor discussion with maybe their sales leader. Cause once you see those things, once you see how someone else is doing it and you're on the receiving end of it very quickly, you're like, Oh my God, I do that too. And I really hate how that felt like. So I think just thematically, more sellers should put themselves in the position of being an, not a simulation, but an actual thing where you have to buy something. And then specifically to the ROI side of it, um, you know, as, as I have been an advocate for a long time and you've got science to back it up is emotions and feelings prevail at the end of the day. Um, numbers don't mean shit if they don't have any meaning behind them. David, top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners. That's it. I think we're in agreement. You know, this idea of sell the way you buy, you know, I, the one thing I'll, I'll slightly uh, disagree with you on uh, in, a, in a lovely Canadian friendly kind of way is that I don't, I don't think we need to give people a hundred dollars stipends to buy things. I think you buy things all the time mm. and the same pathways that exist in those purchases. Like, you know, if you, if you like, for example, a simple question I ask people is I say, if I just asked you to write down everything you bought for lunch in the last month, and then I took that list and I showed it to your doctor. You know, what percentage of the time would your doctor say that, you know, Raj ate the best thing for him, calorically, food groups, you know, portion size, <laughs> right? And like you laugh, okay? And, and, and if I said, okay, great, you went on vacation and I, I, I believe that you believe there's an ROI to going on vacation, but why did you go there? Couldn't you have gone to this other place? Like what was the ROI of that? You know, or you spring for the business class upgrade on your trip to Paris um, even though you don't have the money because you're like, oh man, I really, that would be awesome business class. So I believe we make these decisions every day on the micro and macro level. And if you just step back and inspect that kind of the pathways and mechanisms by which you made that decision and whether or not that decision was the best one for you, how you reconcile the value of it, you will come to the conclusion, right? That, that you need to do more of that. I'd say selling the way you buy, but sell the way you buy hopefully should for everyone should just be like a catalyst a catalyst to really dive down and inspect how you as a consumer 
make purchasing decisions of all sizes because it, it absolutely translates because at the end of the day, purchasing decisions are mostly made by human beings and we all are subject to the same forces. So sell the way by, just be super curious, keep learning and, and look for clues in life around you to help inform your selling motion. My final question, which is how I finish every episode, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. Uh, the first thing that came to, if I'm doing the word association, I just, I said fun. I think it's just yeah. fun. You know, uh, so much learning, so much winning and losing. It's a roller coaster. Life is short. There's so much fun to be had. Um, you know, I, I have fun by learning. I think people, you know, by learning and progressing, I think most of us do. So I, I said, I, I, the first thing was fun. And then I, you know, now I think about it, it's like, oh, but it's, it's tough, but no, it's fun. I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, of entrepreneurship. Um, it's, it's tough, but oh man, what a, what a ride. It's awesome. Entrepreneurship is fun, parentheses, but also tough. <laughs> but also tough. <laughs> maybe rewarding. Maybe that's what it. Maybe that's what it should be, right? But no, I'm, I'll stick with fun. Sticking with fun. Shit. All right. Now. How <laughs> emphatic, Chris. Yeah. He is David Dreamer. Go pick up his book, Sell the Way You Buy, on Amazon or any bookstore if you find yourself walking into bookstores these days. David, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of Startup Hype Man. Oh, my pleasure, Ross. Thanks so much for having me. It's awesome. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guests for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.